I mean, you either are a part of the solution or you're a part of the problem. You're either why the church is in the mess it's in or you're one that God is using to correct the course and right the ship. And I pray, God, every one of us will be a plus tonight. I want you to read Philippians chapter 1 with me, verses 3, 4, and 5. I thank my God upon every remembrance of you, always in every prayer of mine for you all, making request with joy for your fellowship in the gospel from the first day until now. Now the verse doesn't stop, the sentence doesn't stop there. You'll see it continues on, but I'm going to stop reading there. That's what I'm preaching on tonight, specifically that fifth verse. Paul was a thankful man in verse 3. Every time the Philippian congregation crossed his mind, it provoked in him an attitude of gratitude. Philippi was a strategic location. It was a city that had been established by Philip of Macedon, and you wouldn't recognize his name probably unless you were a serious historian, but you would recognize the name of his famous son, Alexander the Great. Philip of Macedon established this city named after him, Philippi, because it was a pivotal and a strategic location. It guarded a coast, and it guarded the basically the only route through the mountains to Europe. Now, Paul was praying over where to go next to preach the gospel. You remember this in the book of Acts. And he thought to himself, I'll go over here and preach, and the Spirit of God forbade him. And he said, well, how about yonder? That's a good location to go give the gospel. And the Lord said, not there. And then he had a vision in the night of a man of Macedonia saying, come here and preach to us. And he obeyed that heavenly call, and consequently the church of the Philippians was established, and because of that, I'm a Christian today. I'm a European by descent. The gospel came to Europe because Paul went to Philippi and established a gospel-preaching church, and because of what those people did with the gospel when they heard it, the gospel reached Europe and reached my forebears, and I stand tonight a beneficiary of the church of Philippi and what they did with the Word of God when it came to them. So, I want you to notice that Paul in Acts chapter 16 uh, demonstrated that he was a man who knew how to thank God. You see, the Philippians, when Paul talked about thanking God and living with gratitude, they knew he wasn't blowing smoke. This wasn't religious talk. Because they knew when that church was in its infancy, the first few ones that were saved, Paul and Silas were arrested and thrown in prison, beaten within an inch of their lives and bound there in stocks. At the midnight hour, they called a little praise service. Remember that? began to worship God and sing praises, and the Lord sent an earthquake. And long before Elvis Presley sang Jailhouse Rock, God rocked a jailhouse one night, didn't he? And knocked the doors off of the jails, and, and that old jailer said, what must I do to be saved? He got to be one of the first converts to the church at Philippi. Got born again that night when Paul said, Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ, and thou shalt be saved in thy house. So the Philippians knew Paul meant it when he talked about thanking God and worshiping the Lord, and they knew he could worship in the worst of circumstances, but when he wrote back to them and said, I thank my God upon every remembrance of thee, he was saying, when I think every time you cross my mind, there's something about you that causes me just to have an outbreak of worship. I, I just start having a camp meeting every time you cross my mind. I tell you, I want to be the kind of Christian that when someone thinks of me, I'm a cause for thanksgiving instead of misgiving. I know a lot of church members that they're a call. You wonder, do they really know the Lord? 
They say they do. They call themselves a Christian, but you're really uncertain if it's real with them or not. They're a cause for misgiving. But when Paul thought of the Philippians, he said, you're a cause for thanksgiving. And then he specifies what it was about them that caused him to so respond. And so that's what our text is tonight, verse 5. Here's why he had such thanks in his heart and such an attitude of joy when he thought of them. For your fellowship. Verse 5 begins with this little word for, which is an explanatory word. It literally in the Greek language is the word upon or on. This conjunction on. And the idea Paul said, my thanksgiving for you is resting on something. It's founded on something. Something that he saw in them and heard about them. This positive influence that these folks were having on in Paul's heart was based on something. So what is it that his thanks rested upon? For your fellowship or upon the occasion of your fellowship in the gospel from the first day until now. This phrase, your fellowship in the gospel, then would be pivotal, wouldn't it? It would be the key, really, to Paul's attitude of gratitude when he thought of the Philippian Christians. So let's think about that for a moment tonight, this Bible phrase, your fellowship in the gospel. First of all, Clarify the gospel with me. You, you know what the gospel is about. The gospel literally means the good news of who Jesus is and what he's done on behalf of undeserving sinners. John 3.16 is a verse I'm glad's in the Bible. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son that whosoever believeth in him should not perish but have everlasting life. I would call that good news. Would you say that's good news? The gospel is good news. Our son and daughter-in-law uh, have bought a Christian bookstore in Jasper, Texas, and uh, they have a, a sign on the side of their car advertising the store. He called me the other day and said they had gone after they closed the store one evening. They went to a local uh, fast food restaurant to grab a bite of supper, and they parked their car there in the parking lot and went in. There was another couple that was in the, the, the little uh, Taco Bell also there in Jasper, Texas, and a third couple came in after the two of them were in there. A third couple came in and made place their order. Then they went to find a place to sit. They wound up sitting beside this other couple across the way from my son. And the lady asked the man at the table, are y'all the ones who own the Christian bookstore? And my son said his reaction was three or four choice triple letter words. Blankety blank, 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 no. Not just no, but I mean had to cuss God out in the process of it. And when my son called to tell me about that, I'm telling you, it took me two days to get over it. I wanted to find that guy. And I wanted to look him in the eye and put my finger on and say, what, about what has Jesus ever done that would cause you to hate him like that? What has he done except love you so much that he stepped out of heaven and took your sin upon himself and carried it to an old rugged cross. And now what about that is so offensive to you that you have to cuss God if someone dares to, to confuse you with the owner of a Christian bookstore? It kind of bugs me a little bit. I'm a little bugged about it. Do you pick up on that? I'm a little bit bugged about that. The gospel's not bad news. It's not that God hates you and wants to destroy you. The gospel is good news. God loves you, and he did everything necessary to rescue you from hell. Good news tonight. Good news. The wages of sin is death. I fully deserve that, but the gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. 
Come unto me, all ye that labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. I don't know how anybody could make that anything but good news tonight. The essence of the gospel, if you get down to the brass tacks, the nuts and bolts of it, Paul said this is what the gospel is consisting in. We declare unto you the gospel which we receive wherein ye stand. And then he said this is what it's about. Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures. And he was buried and he rose again the third day according to the scriptures. That's the gospel in its essence and the effect of the gospel. In Romans 1.16, the Bible says the gospel is the power of God unto salvation to everyone that believeth, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. Thank God the Greeks are swept in. The Gentiles, that's my crowd, you see. Thank God. Now, what does, the, what, what, what does it mean for the Bible to say that these Philippian Christians fellowshiped in the gospel? The gospel is the good news of who Christ is and what he's done. But Paul wasn't just thanking God for the gospel. He was thanking God for these folks' fellowship in the gospel. The word is familiar to us. If you're in church circles, you hear fellowship hall spoken of occasionally. Now we call them family life centers most of the time. But in the old days, out in the woods where I pastor, my little country church, we still called it the fellowship hall. We have fellowship meals. In fact, for Baptists, you hear fellowship at brings to your mind a casserole dish probably. I mean, that's what fellowship is for us. It's a meal that we have together around a table. And there's nothing wrong with that. That's a thoroughly biblical practice, amen, to eat around the table together as the people of God, breaking bread from house to house, the Bible says. So there's nothing wrong with that. And you can see I've partaken of it a few times in my life. They don't make ties wide enough for guys like me. The trend in ties today are these narrow ties. I've got too much of me. I need a wider tie. I can't find a source for them right now. But that's fellowship that's done that for me, you see. That's all these Baptist fellowship meals. We're familiar with the word fellowship in Baptist circles, but the Bible word fellowship is about a whole lot more than fried chicken and iced tea and chocolate cake, although I have no objection to any of those things. When Paul spoke of these Philippian church folk fellowshipping in the gospel, the word has a threefold meaning, this Bible word. Let me give it to you tonight. It means, first of all, they had partaken in the gospel in the sense of salvation. They had partaken. This obviously is the necessary entry point of fellowshipping in the gospel. Personally believing the good news of Jesus to the point that I am converted and I'm born again. Not every church member is in fellowship with the gospel because not everyone who professes salvation possesses salvation. Fellowship in the gospel involves partaking of the gospel in the sense of salvation, but it also involves, and I'm going to press on to this. Let me just mention one verse, though, before I do. This is a verse that is so sobering to me. Matthew chapter 7, the Bible said, Jesus said, many will say to me in that day, Lord, Lord, did I not prophesy in thy name? In thy name cast out devils, and in thy name do many wonderful works. And Jesus said, then I will profess unto them, I never knew you. Depart from me, ye that work iniquity. It is a sad reality that a lot of religious people have never been saved. And it's the reason, it, it's the explanation for why they live as they do. They've never been saved. So you have to partake in the gospel. Fellowship is about partaking in the gospel in the sense of salvation. But further, it's about participation in the gospel in the sense of serving. 
The word fellowship in this text, koinonia, you would recognize that word. If you've been around church very much, you've heard someone speak of it and teach on it before. The word koinonia or fellowship means communion. It means sharing something in common. Once these people had personally been saved, these Philippian Christians got connected and they got involved in the work of the gospel in the context of their local church. They weren't bench warmers, in other words. They weren't sideline spectators. They weren't armchair quarterbacks. They saw themselves as participants in a great cause in service of their great king. They didn't just sit around expecting someone else to serve the Lord. They themselves got invested and active in ministry. Professing Christian, ask yourself this question. If every saved person in this church was as interested and invested and involved in surrender and service to the gospel as I am, what kind of church would this be? Would there even be a church? I know a lot of professing Christians that if every Christian was like them, there wouldn't even be a church. They're so inconsistent and uninvolved and unconnected. There wouldn't, could, could anyone even know for sure that there would have been a worship service held regularly on a weekly basis? Or would it be just a guess and a maybe so from one week to the next if the doors of the church house would even be open? If everybody was the kind of fellowshipper in the gospel that you are. You, I know that these singers know this little song. I, I like it a lot. I think it's Triumphant Quartet that sings it. Would, would your church be open next Sunday if you had the only key? Or would everyone be standing around saying, where in the world can he be? Well, Paul said, I want you to know I thank God every time I think of you because when you folk got saved, you didn't just find a place to coast till you get to heaven. You knuckled down, you pitched in, and you got involved. You're not a ringside spectator. You're in the ring, brother. You've got the gloves on, and you want to be a part of what God's doing. You're fellowshipping in the gospel. No wonder Paul praised the Lord for these folk. They, they were involved. They were invested. They were participants in the cause of Christ. You know, the Bible pictures the church as a spiritual body with many parts and many members all bound together under the sovereignty of God, all indwelt and filled by the same Holy Spirit. The Bible says in the book of Ephesians chapter 4 and verse 16 that if the church is ever going to be what God wants it to be, Every joint has something to supply. Every joint supplies something to the functioning of the church. It reminds me of a verse of Scripture in Proverbs 25 that impacted me when I was a teenage Christian. I've never gotten over this verse. Proverbs 25, 19, the Bible says, Confidence in an unfaithful man in a time of trouble is like a broken tooth or a foot out of joint. A broken tooth and a foot out of joint won't put you in the hospital. Neither one of them are life-threatening. But both of them are irritating reminders that something's not right. The body's not functioning as it ought to be, as it can be. I don't want, my, my friend, when the day comes for me to face the Lord God, I don't want to stand before him as a part of the body that was an irritating reminder things weren't operating as they should have been. A broken tooth, a disjointed Ankle. Children of God, every one of us who are saved have been called of Christ to be involved in ministry and we're in this together. And none of us can afford to sit back and disconnect from the gospel in hopes that someone else will pick up our slack and do our part. Because the fact is, God has saved you and he has gifted you to do things that no one else can do just like you can. Now, 
He, his cause is not going under. The church is not going to die. The body of Christ is not going to fall apart. If you don't do your part, someone else will. But you'll miss the blessing of being a functioning part of the body of Christ. Broken tooth, a foot out of joint. Now, lastly, this word fellowship is about partnership in the gospel in the, in the sense of support. Really, when Paul wrote this, I think this was primarily what he had in mind. One translation of the Bible says, I'm glad because of the way you have been my partners in the ministry of the gospel from the time you first believed it until now. And there's an unmistakable financial aspect to this. In, 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 in one translation of the Bible, it speaks of this word fellowship as a gift that is jointly contributed. In other words, the saints of God at Philippi gathered money and sent it to Paul to get the gospel out around the world. These folk pool their resources for the purpose of furthering the work of the gospel at home and abroad. Acts 1.8, the apostle of the, the Lord Jesus said to the disciples that they would, there would be a ripple effect of the fellowship of the gospel. He said, you shall be witnesses unto me in Jerusalem, in all Judea, in Samaria, and under the uttermost part of the earth. Now, I can't personally go to all those places. I have my Jerusalem, that is my immediate area where I've called of God to serve and work. Then there's my Judea, that's the outlying regions. There's Samaria, that's the areas that many folk don't want to go to, kind of questionable, you might say a little dangerous. And then the uttermost part of the earth. I can't personally go to all of those places, but I can fellowship in the gospel and help to get the gospel to all of those places by giving to those called of God to go there. And that's what the Philippians had been doing for Paul all those years church planting support these Philippians didn't operate you see here's the big thing of this passage these Philippians did not live out of a self-absorbed attitude that the only thing that mattered was what was happening in their own backyards they had a global perspective and a global burden to see the gospel reach around the world. The old hymn says, Send the light, the blessed gospel light. Let it shine from shore to shore. The Philippian Christians put their money where their mouth was. They said, we want to get involved in this. We want to get the word of God out every way that we can. Obviously, their attitude was somebody gave so that Paul could come over here to Macedonia and preach to us. They they got the gospel to me now and now that I've been born again I want to do the same for somebody else I want to get the gospel to them any and every way that I can that's the meaning of this term your fellowship in the gospel I want to ask you one more time tonight what would happen to the gospel if every Christian fellowshiped in it exactly like you do no more and no less if every Christian fellowship, suppose you were the high watermark among Christians there was nobody in the world Better it's living for the glory of God than you. You're the high water mark. Where would the gospel be? If everyone was partaking and participating and partnering in it just like you are right now. So Paul said, I thank God every time I think of you. And the reason I do is for your fellowship in the gospel. The matter of fellowship. And then notice the second half of the verse very quickly. I'm I'm eager to hear Dr. Scott preach. I want to finish as quick as I can, but I want you to notice the second half of verse 5. Not only the matter of fellowship, but the measure of faithfulness. Paul said, for your fellowship in the gospel from the first day until now. From the time you personally got saved, Paul said, right up to this present moment, which was 10 to 12 years, historians tell us, from the time 
that first congregation was established to when Paul wrote this letter 10 to 12 years, from the first time you've personally heard the gospel and got saved to this moment, you see these Philippian Christians had a salvation experience that they didn't get over after a little while. I'm sick to my death of folk who get over it. Paul was praising God for the fact that these folk gave every evidence of being real through and through. They weren't a flash in the plant pan. They weren't a fly-by-night wannabe. You know we've got so much Roman candle religion and firecracker faith in the cultural Christianity of our day. Roman candles are pretty, but they don't last very long, do they? They go up with a bang and then go out with a fizzle. I've known a lot of church members who've done that over these years of ministry make professions of faith and you think they're going to turn the world upside down for Jesus and six months or a year later you couldn't find them with a search warrant. Nobody knows where they are. FBI couldn't find them. U.S. Marshals couldn't hunt them down. One translation of the Bible renders my text like this. I'm happy because you're helping people to know the good news about Christ. You've helped me with that work since the first day that someone told you about the good news and you're still helping with that work. There's a great need today for that kind of Christianity. Go into 2020, a brand new year before me, I'm telling you, I am resolved. I want to be one of those reliable, rock-solid, steady Christians. You don't have to guess or wonder what I'm going to be doing this time next year. You don't have to have any question mark in your heart. I want you to be that kind of Christian in your life as well. Don't you want to be? Listen, there are a lot of folk who have a fair-weather faith. As long as things are going their way and the Lord's doing just what they want Him to and their life is easy and enjoyable, you'll find them living for the Lord. But as soon as trouble comes and trials blow in, they get mad at God and they turn Him a cold shoulder. They only love the Lord for what He does for them. And just as soon as He doesn't do what they want Him to, they'll turn on Him in a heartbeat and throw Him away because the fact is their God is their belly. Their God's not the Lord Jesus Christ. Their God is their own whims, their own pleasure, their own desires. And if that God that they say they believe in, if Jesus doesn't satisfy their hungers and their desires like they think he should, they'll walk away from him. They have a fair-weather faith. Then they have others. We have others in the church who have a crisis Christianity. The only time you see them in church and seeking the Lord is when disaster threatens them. When life is pleasant and fun, they never give a thought to the Lord or the gospel cause. But when storm clouds begin to gather over them, you find them around the church house again. They, they start making the right sounds and doing the right things because they're in trouble and they need to get bailed out. The Lord and his precious gospel are for those folk nothing more than a genie in a bottle. Just grant me my wishes and fix my problems. And then as soon as my problems are over, I'll forget you till the next crisis occurs. God save us, God deliver us from that kind of hit and miss, in and out, up and down, on and off, roller coaster Christianity. I'm telling you these things, Paul said, what I love about you folks at Philippi is that from the day you got saved to right now, you're going full steam ahead for the Lord Jesus Christ. This horrible heart condition that sees Jesus as nothing more than a means to an end. It's counterfeit Christianity, it's not the real thing. But these Philippians bore record, bore witness with their lives that they had a real relationship with Jesus Christ. Dr. Stephen Alford interviewed the great Duncan Campbell. Duncan Campbell, I hope you know his name. He was the man of God used in what we call historically the Hebrides Revival, a great move of God that broke out off the coast of Scotland 
on the Isle of Lewis in the 1940s, late 1940s, early 1950s. Thousands of people were won to Christ during that period of time in that outpouring of Holy Ghost power, the Hebrides Revival. Some years afterwards, Stephen Alford said when he was just a young preacher getting started and the burden of his life and ministry was revival, he said he had opportunity to interview the great Duncan Campbell who had preached most of those services during that Hebrides revival. And he said, he asked Brother Campbell, he said, what did you do, Brother Campbell, what did you do to follow up on all of those professions of faith that took place in the Hebrides revival? And he said, Duncan Campbell laughed in my face and said, follow-up? Where in the Bible do you read anything about follow-up? He said, in the Word of God, when somebody got saved, they would follow you around until they learned how to live for Jesus. Acts chapter 2, the Bible says, 3,000 were baptized that day on Pentecost, and they, who's the they? The 3,000 who just got baptized. And they continued steadfastly in the apostles' doctrine and in fellowship, and in breaking of bread, and in prayers. You'd think that the word follow-up would be found in the Bible at least a dozen times based on how often we Baptists use it in modern Christianity. By that phrase we mean when someone makes a profession of faith and says they got saved, then it's our job as the church to chase them around and hound them and stay after them until they agree finally to be baptized and maybe get involved in our church in some way. But the Bible never even hints at such a thing as that. Now, the Bible does say this, they went out from us because they were not of us. If they had been of us, they would no doubt have continued with us. The Bible says that. The Bible says this, that there are those who like a dog going back to his vomit or a hog going back to his pen, that they say they got saved, but it wasn't the real thing. The Bible says that. You can take an old piney woods rooter out of the, the hog slop and perfume her up and put a ribbon around her neck and say she's a kitty cat, but just as soon as you leave the door open, she's going back to the mud hole because she's got the nature of a hog, and hogs act like hogs, and sheep act like sheep. And Jesus said, my sheep hear my voice, and I know them, and they follow me. That's what he said about his sheep. There's a lot of religious talk today, and there's a lot of professions of faith and claims to salvation especially in our country, in America, where it costs virtually nothing to claim to be a Christian. But I believe the Bible bears out that the real thing doesn't wear out in the next week or the next year or the next decade or ever. I got born again when I was a nine-year-old boy. I'm 56 years old. I ain't over it. And I don't believe you get over it when you get born again by the grace of God. I believe in the perseverance of the saints because I believe in the preservation of the saints. The saints persevere because we've got a heavenly Father now who doesn't let us get away with our stupidity. He comes after us, and He deals with us, and He chastens us back into His will. Now listen, my stupid flesh, my stupid self-life is still quite capable of doing the stupidest things, like backsliding out of the will of God. But now that I'm saved, there's somebody else in this equation besides my stupid self-life. I have a Father in heaven who said, my children are recognizable by the fact that when they get out of my will, I chasten them and I get their attention. That's how I know I belong to him. I can get cockeyed and sideways too, but he doesn't let me get away with it. I'm not pretending this is a simple issue to nail down tonight. I know the Bible teaches the possibility of backsliding. 
But I do know, I do know this from personal experience. A backslidden Christian is different from a lost church member because a backslidden Christian is dealt with by the Heavenly Father and no true convert can ever be happy again outside of faithful fellowship with the Lord Jesus Christ. And I know that the only way that anyone can ever be sure that I'm born again is by the fruit of faithfulness in my life to fellowship in the gospel over the long haul. Over the long haul. Now you see the reason for Paul's thanksgiving. You see why he was so filled with encouragement and rejoicing every time the Philippian church crossed his mind. Here's a translation of my text. Every time I think of you, I give thanks to my God for you have been my partners in spreading the good news about Christ from the first time you heard it until now. And I pray, God, that this same thing could be said of me and said of you because, folks, soon and very soon we're going to see the king. And when we see the king, the only thing that's going to matter is that he's able to say to you and to me, well done, good and faithful servant. You've been faithful over a few things. I'll make you ruler over many things. Enter thou into the joy of thy Lord. Let's pray. Father, thank you tonight for these moments and this precious passage of Scripture. I pray, God, it might be said of us, each one,